We pray that in your name. Amen, amen. I pray you're, being, you're staying warm and you're doing well as we have this cold spell this last week of February. And uh, we do want to study the last book of the Old Testament. So if you got your Bibles with you, Malachi chapter 1, we're going to study the whole book uh, here th- tonight. And, and that's going to finish the Old Testament. Like I said, I pray that you're doing well and looking forward to uh, this weekend and when we gather once again in the book of Daniel. Uh, I think some very significant things, of course, taking place in Europe and around the world as we're going to go into chapter 2 of Daniel. And Daniel is going to give us the very foundation of biblical prophecy as he tells Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then is also going to give the interpretation of the dream. Daniel, as many of you know, if you studied that chapter, is going to speak of the Gentile nations that come on the scene from the time that he's in Babylon to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I think that we are living near to uh, seeing the fulfillment of the last part of this dream that he had. Much of it has already come to pass, but there's the ten toes, there's the feet of clay and iron, and we're going to talk about that. And I think even what as we're seeing today is very significant it, when it, uh, it, as we see it compared to the prophetic scenario. Um, and I think you'll find it to be very fascinating, interesting. And so come join us for Daniel um, as we move into chapter 2 on this Sunday. Also, there's a lot of other things that are taking place here at Calvary. A lot of announcements that we've made, uh, ways for you to be in fellowship, uh, to be in Bible studies during the week. And so we encourage you to look at the e-bulletin that's on the website, also on the app, and take a look at all those things that are taking place here at Calvary Chapel. Father, we ask that you would just bless this time as we study uh, the last book of the Old Testament. And uh, as it's taken 16 years for us to travel through the Old Testament for the second time. We thank you for the privilege of of doing that. We know that all scripture is inspired by you and is profitable. And so much of the Old Testament can be ignored by believers, but Lord, we know the importance of, of the whole counsel of God's word. So I pray that as we cover these four chapters, that once again you would speak to us. And Lord, that we would uh, have a desire to please you with our lives. So we give you this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Malachi, his ministry taken place sometime after the second temple was built, after the time of Haggai and Zechariah. Now remember the last three books of the Old Testament, as we saw Haggai, he's on the scene when they came back to rebuild the temple in 536 B.C., Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the foundation was built. But then the work stopped, and Haggai, he comes along and says, listen, it's time to get back to the work of the Lord. Um, And the Lord would say through Haggai, consider your ways. Very important message for us today, because the Lord would say to you and to me, consider your ways. Are you doing the work of the Lord? Or are you turning inwardly as they were at that time and forgetting about doing the work of the Lord? 
Then Zechariah, as we finished last week, he's on the scene about the same time as Haggai, and he's giving some powerful prophetic uh, insight into the last days, particularly when it comes to Israel and the restoration of Israel, the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, what's going to happen, uh, particularly at the end of the tribulation period when the armies of the world come against Jerusalem, when they have the final battle of the battle of Armageddon, and then how the Lord's going to intervene. He gives us specific insights to the Antichrist, uh, to the reign of Christ that will come, uh, and doing away with the Antichrist. Uh, very incredible visions that we saw. Malachi here, his ministry is taking place after that time. Malachi, his name means my messenger, and he would be the last messenger of God, the last prophet, that is, until John the Baptist had come on the scene. And John the Baptist closes the the time of uh, the Old Testament. He closes the time of the prophets of the Old Testament. And we know that there is a 400-year gap between Malachi and when the announcement came in Luke's gospel of John uh, the Baptist's birth to to his father Zacharias that was in the temple there in Luke chapter 1. So 400 years, those are called the silent years. Now we do know that Daniel actually gives us some details of what happens concerning the Gentile nations at that time. Because in 605 BC, that was a real turning there of uh, the God's people of when they went off into captivity by the Babylonians, they would be under the bondage of somebody. From that time, uh, clear up until Jesus says that there will be the time uh, that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. And so we know that Jerusalem now, for the first time in 1967, was really under the sovereignty of Israel. Very significant, the first time since 605 B.C. But we know the prophecies of the the last days speak of the time that when the Antichrist comes on the scene and and he will have influence, and then uh, we know that Jerusalem will be totally free in Israel, safe from his neighbors when Jesus comes back. But after Zerubbabel came on the scene, bringing back the first wave of remnant back into the land, after the Babylonian captivity in 536 B.C., they rebuilt the temples we discussed, and then Ezra, about 80 years later, would bring a small number back with him in about 458 B.C. And then Nehemiah, he came back, as you read in Nehemiah chapter uh, one and two, that the command was given to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which would also set for uh, the prophecy of Daniel in the 70 weeks of Daniel. We'll talk about that when we travel through Daniel, but he would come back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So Malachi is prophesying shortly after that time. The spiritual condition of the nation was this. After the captivity, they come back, Haggai and Zechariah again prophesying when the temple was being built, calling the people to get back to serving the Lord. Later, as Nehemiah would come back uh, in 445 B.C., as you read his book, you begin that Nehemiah addresses the people as you read chapter 13 that the priesthood is beginning to be defiled. Uh, Marriages are being corrupt. The, The ties to the Levites were being kept back. And the people were beginning to live in rebellion uh, as they were marrying pagan women, which was Solomon's problem, as you know, that would lead the nation once again into idol worship and eventually into captivity. Solomon, who 
who is known for having the wisdom of God, didn't live out that wisdom at the end of his life. And he took pagan wives and he burned incense to them and had the high places where they would worship those pagan gods. And it had devastating effects on the nation. So as we see here, Malachi, the first couple chapters are really kind of heavy here as he addresses these problems. And as we begin to read in chapter 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved? And as we continue in verse 3, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. So the burden beginning this book sets the somber mood of and the Lord reminding them that, that of his love for them. So they're going to ask seven questions of the Lord here, and God's going to answer them. And the very first question, as we saw, in what way have you loved us, is what they ask. And he is going to reply by telling them that I gave you a covenant. I made a covenant with you that went through Jacob. Of course, it began with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. Uh, And he says, I've given you the land of milk and honey, and I've given you the prophets. I gave you victory. I've been faithful to you. And we see today is sometimes people will say to us, how has God loved me? How has he loved me? Always point him to the cross at Calvary. And we know that the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He proved his love for us by going to the cross while we're yet sinners. And he first loved us, and now we can love him. So if you ever question, or if somebody comes to you and says, well, how has God loved us? How has he loved me? You tell him about the cross, how he loved you so much that he went and died for your sins on Calvary's cross and rose again. He went through sufferings. And we need to remember that as well, because sometimes we think, Lord, do you Do you still love me? Does your love remain? And Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God. He will always love you, and his love remains. And always look to the cross where he proved his love, dying for you as well. So they responded by questioning his love. And people sometimes have problems with verses 2 and 3 here. Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated there in verse 3. But first of all, they're questioning God's sovereignty. He chose Jacob. It was through Jacob that the covenant would go through. And, of course, Jacob had his 12 sons that were the patriarchs to the 12 tribes of Israel. It was Esau that he rejected. So Jacob, he was the one the covenant went through that God chose. Even though Jacob, as you read the book of Genesis, he had plenty of problems and his son as well. And Jacob was kind of a carnal guy. His name means heel snatcher, always conniving and deceiving and deceived his brother. But Esau was one that was carnal. And uh, the word hate here is not talking about God's emotion towards Esau, like I hate his guts, but rather sovereign choice is what is being spoken of. He chose the descendants of Jacob for the covenant relationship as his people. And it isn't that God says today that, hey, I love you and you, I hate your guts and you make me sick. So we know that Esau would be carnal, sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, 
married pagan women. The nation had Esau's characteristics. We've seen the proclamations against Esau going through the books of the prophets, and they came against Israel. But we continue reading in verse 4, even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, that they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So even though Edomites boasted about being a great nation, God would deal with them, and they would no longer be a people. So you don't meet an Edomite anymore. So how have I loved you? I will preserve you, my people, and my promises are true for you, and one day I'm going to restore you. But then he continues to address what's going on uh, with uh, the priests, with the Levites, uh, with the people, uh, as they're beginning to dis. Uh, uh, re, you know, respect the Lord, begin to be disobedient to the Lord as they would offer polluted offerings. Let's read about that. The second question, verse 6, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say in what what way have we despised your name so the second question they ask here according to verse 6 is in what way have we despised your name God says a son honors his father a servant honors his master but you don't even honor me the greater Uh, you don't revere me and that's true today as Christians, we are to have reverence for the Lord. And sometimes that can be lost. Sometimes that can be lost uh, even in the church as pastors are teaching. We are to be teaching about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I touched on this on Sunday that it means to have a reverence for the Lord. It's a, he is a holy God. Uh, he, we are to revere him, reverence him. Uh, we are to have a deep just sense of uh, awe over the Lord who's awesome and great and mighty. He's the creator of the universe. So living in the fear of the Lord is not having this, this unhealthy terror of the Lord, but to understand this, that there is none like him. And he is the one that we reverence. He is the one that we are to have a deep respect for and, and we are to honor him and honor him with our lives. And that's what the Lord wants them to do, but they're not doing that. Let's continue in verse 7. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? They may ask, in what way have we defiled you? The priests of Israel presided over the sacrifices. We know that. And they were not to offer blemished sacrifices. But they were doing that. They offered the lame. They offered the sick of the animals, the blind animals as a sacrifice. And they didn't really have a serious attitude about serving the Lord. They were just going through the motions. That's good enough. 
Uh, I remember when, uh, when I was in college, uh, when I was working for the government, I was working, you know, in doing vegetation studies for the Department of the Interior. We kind of would have a saying, well, that's good enough for government work. And that was kind of their attitude. That's good enough. Uh, and they weren't giving the Lord the best. He said, would you do that to the governor? You wouldn't do that to a governor. How come you do it to the one who you are to revere and to truly honor God who is the great um, and awesome God, the creator of the universe? We are to, to give God our best. And the question for us tonight is, do we give God our best? Because we are called to be a living sacrifice, aren't we? And I know that none of us do that perfectly but our hearts are to be, Lord, I, I don't want to just give you the leftovers or say that's good enough, but to revere you, to walk in the fear of the Lord, to give you my very best. In verse 7 here, uh, sometimes this is kind of confusion. You offered defiled food on my altar. That is speaking again of the sacrifices. You can go to Leviticus chapter 21. Sacrifices were called food. And, and this is a very sobering verse for us. Uh, any of us to consider and pray through. For me personally, I don't want to just present the defiled food or a sacrifice to God in serving Him when it comes to teaching His Word. You know, tonight we finish the Old Testament here, and, and God has given me the privilege for the last 26 years to teach through the Scriptures. When we came up to Greeley, Sue and I, 26 years ago, it was my prayer that, Lord, you've put on my heart to teach the people through the Word of God, all of the Word of God from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And that means all of the books of the Old Testament, all the, the, the chapters and verses. When you consider 150 chapters of the book of Psalms, 66 chapters in Isaiah, all these chapters that we've gone through, it's been a privilege. And I've always tried to do the best that, that, that I can with the help of the Lord and only by His grace that, Lord, every time I get behind this pulpit, I am to handle the Word of God, rightly dividing the Word of truth, and have a respect for the Word of God. And again, I know that I haven't done that perfectly, and, but the Lord has graced me and allowed me the privilege to be able for 26 years to go through all the books of the Bible. So tonight here, in just a little bit as we finish Malachi, that we are going to finish all of the books of the Bible for the second time, and I'm very grateful for that. But I've always tried to take that very serious is what I'm saying. And God honors his word above his name, as David would write in the Psalms. And as we are ones that, as we raise our kids, as we're serving the Lord, as we're discipling others, to give the Lord our very, very best. I tried not to just tell a lot of jokes and stories about me and all the other things, be sloppy and studying, but to, to present you the Word of God as we go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we're going to continue to do that as we go through the books of the Bible on Sunday. But in verse 9, But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while he, this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? 
I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. In verse 11, for from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. And for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. You're trying to win God's favor when you're doing such things and having the attitude that you have. Verse 10, he says it's better to shut the doors rather than continue in worthless worship. And that's a word for me here. I pray for us that every time that we gather together that we wouldn't take it for granted. I think that over the last couple of years, is, I think we're coming to the end of this COVID pandemic. I, I know it's still around and it's still serious. But what we've gone through and, and when we uh, began the pandemic, when we couldn't meet in person for a few months, it really taught us about the importance of fellowship and being together. And I've learned things and we all have learned things. And God made us to fellowship with him and with each other. And how it is such a privilege for us to meet together. I think about how the world is changing and how Christians are being persecuted as we see the upheaval going on all around the world and what the Christians are going to be facing with Russia and uh, attacking and coming into Ukraine or at least an imminent attack as, as we, we see it, that it's right there. And I think what's going to happen to the Christians? How are they going to be persecuted? We have such freedoms here in our country. And I know that we get concerned that those freedoms are going to erode and, and we're going to begin to lose those freedoms. But I pray that we would never have to just take for granted and have the mindset of, oh, well, we meet again. We get to, you know, have church. I guess I'll go this Sunday. It's a privilege. And if we ever lose the excitement of, of studying the Word of God and being used of the Lord in these days, we might as well just shut the door. If we're not truly worshiping the Lord, but we're just going through the motions, and this is what we do, and, and um, we don't want that. And here he's saying you have worthless worship, and might as well shut the doors. And verse 11, God will be worship and honor. And it speaks about how Malachi here is speaking that it will be done among the Gentiles. And, and the Jews didn't understand that, even in the early church, where they had to understand that salvation would come to Jew and Gentile like believers in Jesus Christ. But in verse 12, but you profane it, says, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and his fruits, his food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen and the lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Be cursed by the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow but sacrifices to the Lord. What is blemish? For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is to be feared among the nations. So their attitude was rotten, one of contempt. They didn't, uh, you know, want to make things straight and, and get right with God. And they saw ministry even as a burden. I pray that we would never see walking with the Lord as a burden because John in his epistle, he said that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Wow, what a blessing it is to walk with the Lord and to serve the Lord. That, wow, thank you, Lord, that I get to serve you. We get to serve the true and the living God. I don't want to give him my leftovers. 
And oftentimes we can give him our leftovers with our time and with our service to him, with our resources and giving to him. Oh, we are to invest in the kingdom of God. We are here for such a time as this. We're rushing towards the return of the Lord. What a wonderful time for us to be engaged in the things of the Lord and to move forward in what he has for us. And here they were, they were just this attitude, and they were actually deceivers, verse 14, but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow and the sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. We read that. They were deceivers. They were lying. They had, you know, made a, a, a male for a sacrifice. They said, well, we don't have one. Uh, we don't have the best. We're not, we don't have that. We're going to offer the blemish. We can't fool God, and we can't fool God with our own lives and with our own hearts towards him. In chapter 2, and now, O priest, this commandment is for you, if you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts. I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. So he's speaking to the spiritual leaders here, and they were to take what they do seriously. You're to honor God with your heart and your service to him, and I am to do that as well. You are to do that as the spiritual leader of your home. And failure in this, that God says, I will bring a curse. Now, we've talked about how Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, the blessings and the curses, when we read that word curses, don't think of a weird kind of a cultic kind of the curse, you know, voodoo curse or, you know, put a curse on you or something. It's speaking of hardship, that, that God's going to bring that judgment, that hardship upon the people. And we experience hardship if we're not honoring the Lord with our worship and our service to him and walking with him and desiring to please him with our lives. In verse 3, behold, I will rebuke your descendants and, and spread refuse on your face, refuse uh, on your solemn feast, and one will take uh, you away with it. And, and you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. So if you bring dishonor to me, I will dishonor you. It's like illustrated that dung is going to be on their faces. It's not a pretty picture. You know, refuse uh, on your faces and and all of this. And, and it's just... And it really shows how it offends God uh, as he's speaking to them. And my covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. As we read these verses... The Levites, the priests, because they stood with God when people sinned in the wilderness, remember, and danced around the golden calf. And, and, and Moses says, who's with me? Come. And it was the Levites that, that came and stood with him. They revered God. They, they spoke and knew God's word. They, they walked with God. He's speaking about that. And then in verse 7, for the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, is what it, he says. And the people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. We have a very important, you know, responsibility. Me as a pastor, you as a parent, you who disciple, who teach others, 
that we want to give counsel God's word that is, speak it. And we are to be a messenger of God. And the priests, they were to have knowledge. And you and I, we are to continue to, to have that knowledge. Even as we discussed on Sunday, that as it was Daniel, that he purposed in his heart not to defile himself, right? And because of that, God worked and gave him wisdom and knowledge. And, and he did. He had great wisdom and knowledge. We're going to see that. And the Lord wants to do the same thing with you and me. That as we say, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to get my heart right with you. Then he desires for us to grow in his word and in the word of God to be used of him. And that's how we're going to help others and bless others as we just grow in the knowledge of God's ways and his word and his love. And, and that's how we can bless others. And so it's an awesome privilege and, that we have, but it's also an awesome responsibility that we have as well. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So he's talking once again about what it is that they're doing, these priests. The, they're these leaders that were to be used to give knowledge, to bless others, to tell them about the heart of God and the truth of God. But you've corrupted the covenant of Levi, he says. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways and have shown partiality in the law. God's word is true for us. We can't mess around with God's word, show partiality is what he's talking about. These are strong words. You've caused many to stumble. And if we don't give people the truth of God's word, we're going to cause them to stumble or, or walk around in the darkness rather than giving them the light. There are those who you know, have caused many to stumble at the word. They departed from the ways of God. We see that more in the church, unfortunately. And God said, I will work against you. The people were, will turn against you. And then in verse 10, we have not all one father. Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? So God rebukes the priests for their treacherous dealings. Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. Listen, he has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So they were marrying foreign wives that would be involved in idol worship, and that ended up being a big problem. Again, that was the problem of Solomon. As David was one, he loved the Lord. The reason that the kings of Judah were compared to David, not because David was didn't you know ever sin. David committed murder and adultery. But David was one that had a heart after God. He never bowed to knee to an idol. Solomon did. And Solomon introduced once again because of those foreign wives that he married, had a thousand wives and concubines, that you know, idol worship was brought into the land and had devastating effects. So here, once again, they're marrying foreign wives that are involved in idol worship. It was a big problem. And notice that God's view on marriage is this, that it is a holy institution which he loves. God ordained marriage. He established marriage. He gives the definition of marriage. Clear back in Genesis chapter 2 that a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there's a one flesh that is there, and it is a holy institution, and we are to treat it in that way. 
And they did this here as this problem here, forgetting about what God's word has to say about the covenant of marriage, this holy institution. But as we continue in verse 13, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. So divorce was rampant. They were dealing treacherously with their wife. They broke the marriage covenant uh, that they are truly one. God saw them as married, but yet they were treating their spouse, their wives, in a way that they were taking it very lightly. And then as we read in verse 16, For the Lord of God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce. He doesn't hate the divorced person. And some of you that are listening here tonight, you've gone through divorce. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness in that. It's not an unforgivable sin. But for all of us that are married, know this. That it's a holy institution, not to be taken lightly, but reverently. And, and coming together as one flesh in the covenant of marriage. And to remember this, that he hates divorce. He hates what it does to couples, what it does to family and splitting families. He hates divorce. So don't deal treacherously, he says, with the wife of your youth. In verse 17, as we finish the chapter, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? Another question. And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? So the fourth question, how have we wearied you? They were saying, you're blessing others, we're better than them. You delight in them. Where is the Lord of justice? And we're going through difficulty. And it, it wasn't right thinking. The people resisted his truth and work. And God is offended when we say, Lord, you're in not good. You're, you know, not dealing with me. You know, in an injustice way is what you're doing. You're not just. You're not good. You're not compassionate. Listen, the Lord will chasten us when we're not right with him. And that's what he's doing here with them. And he does that because he does love us. And he desires for us to look to him. But I know that sometimes we can wrestle with the Lord and we think, Lord, I've been praying about this. And Lord, I've been waiting on that. And it seems like you're not working. And Everybody else, you know, it seems to be uh, moving forward with life and being blessed, but not me. Listen, he sees you. Don't think that he's not just or doesn't care or not compassionate. He is one that is full of mercy and compassion, abundant in mercies. His name is declared. And he's the one that will perfect that which concerns you, and he sees you. And he's perfectly just and righteous. And as I mentioned on Sunday, one day we will stand before him and say, righteous and true are your judgments, your decisions, O Lord. 
Chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and I will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So in the previous chapter, it ends with, where is the God of justice? They thought they could get away with their actions. And now the chapter will open up with the God of justice that will come. And here it's speaking of John the Baptist. It parallels Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that he would come and prepare the way of the Messiah. John the Baptist declared he was a fulfillment of Isaiah and Malachi. The messenger of the covenant, that is the title, is the only place it's a title Messiah who would come to the temple. Now we saw in Ezekiel and also in Zechariah recently, speaks of Jesus coming to the temple. But in his second coming, in, in, in his reign, he'll come to the temple. Now, Jesus, in his first coming, we know that he went to the temple. He cleansed the temple, rebuked the religious leaders. But Malachi talks about Jesus' second coming. Let's continue to read about that. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer the Lord an offering in righteousness. So again, Jesus will come in great glory and those who seem to, to get away with injustice, he will purge and cleanse and he will purify the Levites and they will serve in the temple. We saw that there in the book of Ezekiel. And verse 4, and then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away uh, an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So I want, you know... Not just meaningless, useless rituals, but I want your heart where you care about others and you're serving others. Now, in Tabernacle in the wilderness, the kind of glory of God, the cloud uh, of, of, you know, uh, that was there, the kind of glory, the cloud, the fire in the middle of the camp, uh, the people saw the Lord. He was the focus of the people. And when the Lord comes back in the second coming in his reign, his glory will be the focus once again. And he's going to do away with evil and their service will be pleasing. So is our service pleasing to the Lord today? Lord, I'm serving not so I can make a name for myself or, or you know, for my own agendas or whatever, but I want to please you, Lord. I want to be used of Luke you to help others to to care about others for i am the lord verse six i do not change therefore you are not consumed those sons of jacob yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinance and have not kept them return to me and i will return to you says the lord of hosts but you said in what way shall we return uh, i don't change uh, his love and promises for Israel, we're the same. His love and promises for you and for me are the same. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then the fifth question is, how shall we return? God is saying, I want your hearts. Repent and turn to me. Keep my ordinances. Uh, we are to walk in obedience because we have a heart for the Lord. And we will do more in love, as Paul says in the book of Romans, that all of the law can be summed up in one word, love. As you love the Lord, you're going to walk with the Lord. 
And one of the things that, that uh, somebody called and asked me a question on the radio about this kind of very thing, that in the Old Testament as they went through it, how did they keep from just going through the, the rituals? And, and I said, well, they had a problem with that. And the Lord was always calling them back to himself. Turn back to me. You're just worshiping me. Remember Jeremiah said to the nation before they went off into captivity, you're just coming in pretense. You don't have a heart for me. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. He was always calling them to have a heart for him and a love for him. And the same thing is true for you and for me today. And as we do that, we're going to walk with him and desire to please him. And will a man rob God? That's the sixth question as we see that uh, yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? So the sixth question there, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings that there will not be uh, room enough to receive it. So how have we robbed you? How can a man rob God? Uh, who would even think of robbing God? And sometimes when that question is asked, somebody might think, well, they break into the church and they steal you know, things. And, and that is robbing from God. Or, but the, here, they were robbing from God, as we read here, by not giving their tithes. And God says, try me in this. And these verses that, that we read here, and, and, you know, he goes on and uh, he, he would say that in verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fall, fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be delightful, uh, a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So he, he's saying here in this that you... Try me in this area. You're keeping back the tithes. And you're robbing me by not giving the tithes. The tithes, of course, is 10%. And it is the only area that God challenges us to test him. Test me in this, in our giving. And one of the things that you will find is you cannot outgive God. What we have done here at Calvary Chapel 26 years ago, everything that's come in, we've given 10% to, you know, a missions fund where we buy Bibles, beloverance, you know, given to others uh, to uh, help uh, ministries, to mission fields, to radio, anything that we can do to get the word of God out there. And one of the things that we have found out is we cannot outgive God. God is not a stock market investor or a guarantee to win the lottery, but he does promise to bless us. And sometimes people will say, okay, tithe is an Old Testament kind of deal. Uh, we see tithe clear back in the book of Genesis before the law in chapter 14 when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So all the giving of the tithes and offerings as you actually go through the Old Testament law would be actually around 25%. So the Levites, you know, uh, are, um, as they would give to the priests, the Levites, but Leviticus gives guidelines to those that didn't give tithes to the penalties. And it was to help the temple, the priests, and provide for them. The Levites didn't have an inheritance. Now, in Second Corinthians chapter 9, as we come to the New Testament, people ask, are we to give a tithe? That's an Old Testament thing. Paul 
he writes this. He's speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, you guys are to give like the churches in Macedonia who were poor. That's Philippi, Thessalonica. And, and look at their example. They give out their poverty. And you guys are to give there in, in, um, in Achaia. And Paul writes, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or, or of necessity, but God loves a cheerful giver. So here, how much should we give? We're to give freely is the, what we're told in the New Testament. We're to give bountifully. We are to give willingly. God loves a cheerful giver. And 10% is a good model, a tithe. The tithes and then the offerings, what is above that. But some people may give more than 10%. Some people will give, you know, as they begin to give to the Lord. But as we do give, again, it is out of a heart that wants to give to the Lord, invest in the kingdom of God. And we are to give. How much should we give? That's between you and the Lord. But a tithe is a good good you know guideline for us to give and we are to give to god who gave us everything gave us his son and has forgiven us and loves us so the tithe here and god listen god wants us to invest in the kingdom it's important for us to give as we invest in the kingdom of god because remember that jesus said that where your treasure is there your heart will be and if you have your treasures that you're putting in the kingdom of God, your heart's going to follow in that. And as we give to the Lord, it's investments that the returns are out of this world. And, and God's going to reward you. But to invest in the kingdom, the things that, that God does through our tithes and, and to be able to support the ministry, to be able to support what God is doing, that's eternal, you know, uh, lasting uh, benefits to bless people and to build the kingdom of God. And it's such a privilege to be able to do that. I pray that we never, what I'm saying, is seeing that giving is just a burden. Oh, I got to give to the church. Listen, if you have that, just keep it. All right? And one of the reasons what, that we just have boxes here, because I want you to give freely and willingly. And where God guides, he does provide. And if he ever stops, you know, guiding us and then you know he, he doesn't need to provide for us but he's always provided for us so as you give give willingly cheerfully because you want to invest in the kingdom of god and then in verses 13 through 15 the the people complain your words have been harsh against me says the lord yet you say what have we spoken against you you have said it's useless to serve god what profit is that that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed, and those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. So question number seven, the last question, what have we spoken against you? They thought God hadn't blessed them enough. So it's useless to serve God. It's the proud that's blessed. Psalm 49 declares men will Bless you when you do well for yourselves, but when he dies, he will carry nothing away. Are you rich towards heaven? The parable of the rich fool that built bigger barns, but your soul's going to be required of you. And Jesus said the tragedy of the rich 
fool that built bigger barns is he lived for himself and he wasn't rich towards God. Listen, you may think that that person that is rotten or that person who, you know, doesn't have a right heart towards God that you see, that they seem to be blessed. They get to move forward and everything. I'm trying to serve the Lord, do the best, live for the Lord. Why should I do that? Because I'm not being blessed. Listen, God sees and he knows. Why should we continue to serve him and trust him? Because again, he's perfectly just and he is good and he remembers. Matter of fact, in verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him and those who feared the Lord and who meditate on his name. Listen, he has a book of remembrance. He remembers everything you do for him. And, and he is going to reward you. He sees. And God's not a debtor to anyone, as I mentioned on Sunday. We're not going to get to heaven and say, Lord, how come? And this, and they were blessed, and, and all of this. That he sees, and he will bless, and he knows. Continue to serve the Lord. Trust him. Trust him. And just rest in his love for you and his promises. There's a book of remembrance that has written that he knows everything that you've done for him. And then in, in verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day I will make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So God's going to set things right. And God remembers your faithfulness to him and submission to him. Others may not, but God sees it. And he has a book of remembrance. And keep that in mind. And then speaking to the nation, making them his special treasure, were his treasure, according to Matthew chapter 13, uh, as he says that the kingdom of God is like a treasure that's found in a field, and a man gave all that he had to buy the field to take the treasure out. The treasure is you and me. And we may not feel like God's jewel, you know, pearl, great price. He went on to tell that parable. But we are a treasure, and we are, are very special and precious to the Lord. And as then he closes the chapter by the distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be made by the God of justice. Remember, his title is the God of justice. And then as we finish the last chapter of the Old Testament, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that they will leave them neither root nor branch. Uh, the day of judgment will come. In that day, the wicked who prosper will be stubble. Don't think that they're getting away with wickedness. And then verse 2, But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise. I like that. The son of righteousness uh, shall arise. Uh, again, a title of, of the Lord. With healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, and you shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day as I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So they're going to be like ash under your feet. Uh, you're going to go out. You're going to be blessed. The wicked no longer will trample you. But you will ha jump for joy like stall-fed uh, calves, as he uses that analogy. And then remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, to the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. 
So here it's interesting that the Old Testament ends with the promise of the coming of Elijah the, the prophet in the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I believe that we see that in Revelation chapter 11. Now remember Zechariah chapter 4, the two witnesses, it spoke historically of Zerubbabel and Joshua. But prophetically it speaks of Elijah, and I think it also speaks of Moses as well. As you know, we read this, um, that Elijah will come. Remember the law of Moses. I think the two witnesses are Elijah, who represents the prophets, and Moses. They were seen on the, the Mount of Transfiguration speaking with Jesus. So uh, we will see that. But the coming of Elijah is, is uh, promised before the dreadful day of the Lord. So we can be pretty certain that one of the two witnesses is speaking of Elijah, and I think also the second one is Moses, but uh, we will see the dreadful day of the Lord as it ends the Old Testament with that, that that is yet future when the tribulation period comes. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. And I'm very grateful to the Lord that he's allowed me to, to go through 16 years, go through the Old Testament a second time. So this is where we're at. Um, I'm going to continue doing Sunday mornings, of course. And what I want to do is, is um, as Wednesday nights online are going to stop for now, you got the whole library to be able to go through those books of the Bible. But what I want to do is start getting it on paper and start writing some commentaries. Well, um, you know, I have time to do that. It is time to do that. I should have started this years ago. But writing some commentaries on the books of the Bible, some Bible studies, um, we, the series that we did in December, Moving Forward in Difficult Days, we're trying to get that out in book form. It's a lot of work, and I really want to focus on that. And I want to focus on radio that's reaching a lot of people and the live show and, and uh, as we continue our radio program. And to be able to, to you know, really focus on the Sunday morning services and so that's where we're going to move forward. So you have all the library of Wednesday nights. This will end the online Wednesday night services. And, and um, so I just, um, you know, am grateful that the Lord has allowed us to do this for the last 26 years. And we'll see what the Lord has for us as we move forward. Excited about it. But, Father, we do thank you for... Lord, just this time that we've had on Wednesday nights over the years and when we gathered for to clear up until COVID and even the online that people in their homes are listening. And I know that that can continue, that people can take a book of the, the Old Testament and go through it and watch it and listen to it and continue with that. But Lord, we want to move forward in what you have for us, what you have for me and the energy that I have to be able to to get the writings out and the commentaries out and to do that work and, and the weekend services and all the things that are taking place here during the week. I, I thank you for that. You're doing so much here at Calvary Chapel. And so, Lord, um, I pray that you'd bless everyone here and we look forward to meeting on Sunday, that um, we would just take your word, rightly abiding the word of truth, to be the spiritual leaders that you've called us to be in our homes and in the church. And Lord, to give to people. May our hearts be right in serving you, in our giving to you as well. So Lord, we thank you. I pray you bless everyone here as, 
we continue into the rest of the week and keep everyone safe and uh, in this cold weather and some of the snow that's come in and I just pray that we look, uh, be excited about coming here to worship you and to study your word once again on Sunday. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Hope to see you on Sunday.